Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Outward, Slate's show that brings you all of the canonical gay feelings, pride, shame, maybe that little nagging itch you should probably go see a doctor about. Okay, that's actually a (laughs) different episode. (laughs) Um, I'm Jules Gill-Peterson, and I'm happy to be back on the airwaves after taking a little transgender break, which is how I call plastic surgery. Um, And as you can hear in my voice, baby, I'm more beautiful than ever. I don't think that was possible, Jules. You were already a a 10 plus. Um, I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. So happy to be here for Pride Month with y'all. Yeah, and I'm Brian Lauder, uh, an editor at Slate, and I am delighted to be here all together again. I missed you, Jules. Glad you're back. Uh, Such a good feeling. And just in time, because, you know, it's it's June. Let me just say, (laughs) listeners, okay. If you're holding your breath just a little this Pride Month, I want to officially give you permission to just exhale with me right now. (sighs) This is a mindfulness app now. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) We deserve, we all know, tensions have been running pretty high this whole year, Um, but especially now we're gathering to celebrate, reflect, and also maybe renew our commitment to the militant roots of pride because mm. we need them. Mm-hmm. Staggering anti-gay and anti-trans political attacks are just racking up left and right. Pride celebrations are maybe banned or at least canceled in some parts of the United States. There's just a lot of uncertainty about what's to come and some really important questions, I think, about how to put all of this in some kind of perspective. So for this Pride Month... Christina, Brian, and I thought we would just like dive right into those complicated, messy feelings right there with you. And so first, okay, we have to talk about Target. Uh, (laughs) The big box retailer became one of the month's most talked about case studies in rainbow capitalism after an onslaught of right-wing media singled out Target's pride collection and merchandise as apparently uniquely immoral leading not just to a bunch of people going into stores and ransacking displays, threatening employees, but also to Target itself walking back or possibly removing some Pride merchandise or displays from some locations in what critics, you know, sometimes would see as a kind of capitulation. So Christina has a wonderful new piece out embracing the big, huge, ambivalent feelings she got from this whole saga And uh, we'll try to sort through ours as well with her. Then we'll be joined by journalist Delilah Friedler, who has a moving new essay exploring the existential strain on queer and trans communities in rural Tennessee in the wake of that state's legislative attacks on trans people and the renewed aggression of white supremacists and open Nazis. 
Delilah actually asks us to set aside our preconceived notions that Southern states or rural settings are inherently anti-queer and anti-trans, or even that we should try to let go of those places or magically relocate everyone to a big city in some blue state. So we'll really get into talking with her about the genuine power of despair and maybe an interesting kind of rural Southern resilience in this dizzying moment. Clearly, tough feelings deserve their place at Pride. But I promise you this episode isn't here just to get you down. (laughs) We'll have our usual prides and provocations to tickle you with, not to mention our monthly updates to the gay agenda. But first, I believe, Brian, you have a special announcement for us. Yes, I do. I wanted to let our listeners know about a series that we have running in Slate this week, the week that the show comes out, called Not Quite Pride. If you've been listening to the show, you know that for some time now, but especially this year, life for trans and queer people in America has gotten a lot scarier due to the coordinated legislative assault and related vigilante attacks that have been alleged against us. Now, while we're obviously still proud of our communities and culture this June, it would be a lie to say that we're not feeling other emotions as well. Things like despair, fear, and maybe even contempt. So at Slate, we decided to make space for those darker and more complicated emotions and responses to this state of emergency that we're living in, in the form of a series of essays. So as Jules mentioned on the show today, you're going to hear from one of our authors, Delilah, who's written about the grief many trans and queer people are suffering as they contemplate fleeing beautiful rural areas in states like Tennessee. But that is just one part of Not Quite Pride. We have a shrug of indifference from a queer historian who knows the secret of why we'll win. We have a horny postcard from the writhing masses of Pensacola Beach and a deep dive into the separatist fantasy, lesbian reproduction without men. All of these different queer reactions to this moment we're living through, all of them not quite pride. We'll link to this package on our show page. I hope you will take the time to read all of the pieces and share them far and wide this pride season. I love that. What a great idea for a package. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. All right, now it is time for Prides and Provocations. Christina, why don't you start us off? (laughs) I'm laughing because Jules just promised that, like, it's not all sad. And here I am (laughs) to share, like, a really earnest on main moment of provocation for myself. So Make me a liar, Christina. Go ahead. (laughs) So I came down with COVID actually half an hour before I was supposed to go to my first Pride event this year. Uh... Homophobic. And I was out for the entirety of Pride obviously, here in D.C. If you listen to uh, the bonus episode I hosted last week, you heard me talk about how excited I was for a bunch of things that I was going to do. I'm actually still kind of shaken up about it. I feel like I'm mourning something. Really, what I wanted to talk about was that missing pride. It really drove home how much I've come to rely on pride celebrations to kind of carry me through the year and come back to, in my mind, Mm. as a reminder of 
the things that make life so great. And part of this is that, you know, I'm 35 and sort of like those messy nights where everybody really commits to wearing their best looks and going out kind of hard, just feel fewer and further between for people in my friend group because some of them have kids now. I mean, me and Deb are still like out here being 25, but like (laughs) it feels like it doesn't come around that often. Along those same lines, it feels like the future is really uncertain right now for a lot of things around queer life. It felt particularly important this year to go and celebrate Pride because it It feels like we're at the start of what might be like a long turn toward an uncertain end. I felt the same way a year ago when Roe was overturned. We just don't know how this goes. We can't see around the next curve in the trajectory of our country, our politics, our lives. For me, it's been really destabilizing. Just one of the most stabilizing things in my life is queer community and the strength Uh that I take from that. So it was really sad to miss it. Not sure I'll ever get over it. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And, you know, just asking everyone to send me a little happy pride sparkle if you have any to spare this year. So many. Oh, my God. So many. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling, Jules? No, I mean, I'm overall feeling terrible, just like you. <laughs> also, I'm, I'm, I'm only a hair under 35. I'm also really feeling that. Um, but I will say I, I'm feeling provoked, but in a positive sense. I kind of wanted to have something um, both lovely and kind of, you know, superficial-ish. I mean, you know, listeners may know the, the most homophobic thing about me is that I actually don't really like musical theater. (laughs) I don't actually watch the Tony Awards, however. I was happy to see and sort of pleasantly provoked or thought there was some pride in a provocation um, from this month's Tony Awards. Two non-binary performers won Tony Awards Sunday evening, Alexis Newell and Jay Harrison Gee. They weren't only, you know, the first uh, non-binary performers to sort of win, as far as I know. They kind of swapped with those two (laughs) nominations that they won. Um, You know, both turned up looking stunning uh, and brought a kind of, you know, um, Black non-binary presence to the Tony Awards, but also both had been a prompt for a conversation around the gendered categories Mm. uh, in awards ceremonies and in awards more broadly, because they both won a gendered category awards, which is just like, you know, on its face, pretty absurd. And, you know, in a way was sort of like them accepting the honor was kind of like, a compromise they had to make, right, uh, for for recognition for their wonderful work, which, you know, because of my homophobia, I haven't seen, and I'm certain <laughs> is magisterial. And I just, you know, there's just something like, I feel like gender categories and award shows, again, super low down on the priority list, but like kind of one of these things where it's like, yeah, right, like, no one even says the word actress anymore. It's like not really like we just yeah. say actor or performer. And it's like, okay, also award shows are too long. So like definitely eliminate the gender categories, mm-hmm. slim down those shows for us. Um, and, you know, provide an opportunity, not just for non-binary performers, but actually for everyone to, to I think, enjoy um, the difference that not having to gender your, uh, your excellence or your recognition might make. So Thanks to them both um, for being gracious enough to, to accept gendered awards, but also kind of give a little provocation to the Tonys um, and to us all this month. Um, Brian, what about you? 
Okay, so I think we often think of PMPs as sort of a binary, you know? Like... <laughs> Speak for yourself. What did I just say? Yeah, no, Jules was definitely both, but okay, point taken. Maybe some of our listeners think this way. You know, you've got the pride or the provocation, but it's actually, I, I've learned in sort of thinking about mine for this month, it's a circle. Huh. Often a pride could lead into feeling provoked or a provocation. Hmm. Could go into a pride. Wow, so not even a spectrum, but a full... I, I think a circle. So, I, I, so I'm so i going to need your help uh, deciding which one this is, because I can't okay. really <laughs> figure it out, right? Gotcha. Um, okay, so I have got a super secret scoop for, for us from none other than the New York Times. This is from a Times employee who asked not to be identified Ooh. to avoid retaliation from the company. Oh my god. But he sent me a photo from the Times employee cafeteria. And this photo was of something called Pride Hummus. I'm sorry. Oh, no. I'm going to describe the Pride Hummus to you. It is in a milkshake cup, plastic milkshake cup. Excuse me? And it was five layers of different colored hummus. Now, what our investigative journalism has not revealed yet is whether this was food coloring or whether it was different vegetable hummuses, which is possible. But we definitely have purple, indigo, green, orange, red, and then the regular, like, beige. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <Pride. laughs> like, on top. And this, because it's and the this, inclusive pride flag. <laughs> yeah, and this pride hummus. <laughs> Uh, and this was, by the way, five ninety nine at the Times Employee. Okay. Cafeteria. Also, I'm just thinking about hummus. You're meant to dip, so you're then yes. supposed to like dip all the way to the bottom of this cup, of this, and like, your hand just cup. like getting hummus on all sides <laughs> on the way down. Once you get to the purple, multicolored hummus. Oh That's the BDSM so, hummus collection. Nobody ever say we don't do real investigative reporting <laughs> on this show. So yeah, my, my whistleblower wrote to me and said that their brain. <laughs> Went into white noise mode thinking about how we went from Stonewall to 595, <laughs> this garbage. Uh, and they, they shared that they were against banning Pride products. Uh, and this is apropos of our discussion about Target. They were ev- against banning Pride products until they saw the Pride hummus. Valid. So um, I don't know, guys. Uh, this, this Pride hummus initially sort of upset me. I was provoked. But then, and, it, and it's made our whistleblower want to, like, rip rainbow tchotchkes off of store shelves, I think. That's kind of <laughs> frightening. Uh, but then I was like, is the cafe chef that did this actually, am I proud of them? Is it, yeah. like, so far that mm. it's, camp, like, camp, camp or something? I don't know. First of all, you had to make, what, seven different kinds of hummuses? Yeah, either we're food food coloring like seven, yeah, like five (laughs) or seven bowls, or we're actually making like a spinach one and like a ube one. Like, I don't know, but um, someone's doing that. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Is that that a pride or a provocation or something in between? (laughs) I am really hung up on the image of a fist plunging deep into (laughs) a milkshake cup full of hummus. And honestly, it's giving, that's giving pride. It's giving pride. I will say this. I don't want to eat it for whatever, whatever that's worth. All right. I have another provocation this pride month. Usually it is a hallowed pride tradition that we get to mercilessly roast all the terrible pride tributes from our corporate identified community, Mm. our friends of corporation (laughs) experience. Um, The tacky swag, the cringy slogans, the thirsty Mm. ad campaigns, the corny, the offensive, the shameless. We love to hate it. This year, that's not really the vibe. <laughs> this Pride, I don't know if y'all have noticed, things are looking quite different. It seems like 
way fewer companies are doing the big rainbow social media avatar for all of June thing. There was the thing where Major League Baseball disinvited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence from a Pride Night and then reinvited them after like a counter backlash. And then there's Target. The Target Pride Collection, which seems to be getting more and more unhinged every year, uh, (laughs) became the subject of a concerted right-wing intimidation campaign where, as Jules said, that people were filming themselves vandalizing store displays. They were threatening and harassing Target workers. People were calling in bomb threats. There's some kind of boycott Target song rocketing up the right-wing charts. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Target responded by in many stores all over the country, moving the displays to lower traffic areas, taking down signs, um, and certain items were actually removed from the shelves and from their online marketplace across the board, uh, including a swimsuit designed for trans feminine people and sort of a hilariously benign fanny pack because it was designed by a gay who made other products with like kitschy tongue-in-cheek satanic imagery. So they're not even selling that anymore. Some Target employees are also saying their stores aren't selling any items referencing trans identity at all. So I found myself feeling pretty irritated and kind of down about this in spite of the fact that I really don't think there was ever anything useful politically about selling these products. I don't think it matters to our lives or our safety or our happiness. I don't really buy that it helped change the culture toward like LGBT acceptance. I was kind of thinking to myself, like, why does this still feel wrong? Why does this feel like a political threat if it was never a political asset to begin with? You know, what what was corporate pride all about? What purpose does it serve? Uh. So I spent some time thinking about this. I published a piece on Slate about it titled The Dirty Secret of Corporate Pride. Thanks to my (laughs) editor for that one. It makes it sound really spicy. (laughs) If you want to go read it, you know, it's on the website. We'll link to it on our show page. But I want to ask you guys, how did you absorb that news? What do you think it all means? At first, I was like, oh, I think I'm just mourning the loss of having been able to absolutely torch the Target Pride collection every (laughs) summer and make fun of it because it was just sort of like a background, like, oh, like, look at this dumb shit that we have to deal with every year. But like many things lately, I just sort of feel more sort of the uptake of what was going down because obviously came on the heels of Dylan Mulvaney receiving like two cans of Bud Light, which like, again, this sort of new version of right wing boycott that's not actually boycotting um, corporations at all, but is like using the term boycott as a pretense for, uh, you know, at least engaging in representations of violence against Mm -hmm. especially trans people or LGBT people and kind of just using products as effigies or surrogates (laughs) is alarming. And, you know, watching, yeah, watching, shooting all your Bud Light cans. And like when people go into stores and rip down displays and destroy Merchandise, I'm not sad for the loss of commodities. I'm concerned for the safety of people who are working um, and other people who are in those spaces. And let's be real, big box stores and malls in America function as privatized public space. And so, you know, there is just sort of this way that I think a lot of how the normalization of a culture of violence operates is by first identifying kind of like 
non-human targets, right? That you can act mm-hmm. out a lot of violence on, um, not because you really believe you're hurting the people you want to hurt, but because it's a prelude or a pretext to doing that, or it's a way of kind of like showing people that it's okay uh, to do that or inciting them. And and that is the thing that really has just left me feeling stressed in a very United States kind of way where I'm like, okay, I'm very worried about like real world violence, right? Yeah. Against mm-hmm. especially trans mm-hmm. women. But like, why in America do I have to route that fear through watching like a corporate display get ripped down by someone <laughs> who's doing a front facing video? Like that just feels so weird. It's so 2023 that like at that point in my thought process, I'm like, I'm angry. I'm closing my phone and I'm going to go drink coffee and think about something yeah. else. Yeah. I don't know. I found myself reflecting a bit on what target in particular meant to me as a, like not out yet, but definitely semi-aware queer kid in a small town in South Carolina. Hmm. And I think there's a funny way in which Target kind of represented a liberal safe space to me growing up. And I'm not saying that that makes any sense when you like analyze it, right? Like it is, as, as you write, like a corporation, it's there to make money. But in my social world, uh, and, and especially in comparison to like Walmart, yeah, Target mm. was the place that you would go where it seemed that their values were like aligned with, I don't know, like human goodwill and happiness and inclusion. Um, and this was before they had pride displays, right? I'm talking about like in the early 2000s. I mean, their pride displays have become kind of legendary. Yeah. Like, they sell a ton of products yeah. from yeah. like now they're actually good about like choosing queer designers and stuff like that. Like it's actually been kind of like a standout among big box retailers in that way. Exactly. And, you know, and until now they were often, those displays were at the front of the store, you know, or or near it, um, at least even in, even in South Carolina, right? Like I I have gone in and and seen that during trips and things and I'm not like mourning target, but I, but I do think there's something there about maybe just that store, but possibly other other companies feeling like either little safe oases or like al- allies to some extent, depending on where you live and what your mm. context is. Um, it feels like a regional question to me. And yes. I wonder mm. if, our, if our listeners, you, you know, don't live on the East Coast or whatever, who live in smaller places, share that sense. It may not be, you know, the radical anti-capitalist sort of politics that I aspire to, but like it is, I think there's like a social thing there that that is important. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And that back when we had Brandon as one of the hosts, and he's mm-hmm. also from South Carolina, he was saying that he went back home during June and the TD Bank in his neighborhood in DC had the rainbow stuff on and the one in South Carolina didn't. And to me that was, you know, not surprising, but also the ultimate like, look, they're only doing it where it's profitable for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But to think that, you know, Target up to now kind of did this everywhere as far as I know, does make me think that perhaps for people who didn't have a queer community and or were just in hostile places like this was a spot to to be like oh yeah there's like good stuff happening and like good vibes around lgbt stuff and also it just made products affordable and accessible to a huge number of people yes like the fact that they were selling you know a swimsuit with they called it like a tuck friendly swimsuit for trans femmes like 
that that kind of a product has not always been available at like mass market retailers across Uh the country. But so I was thinking also about what was bad about corporate pride. And to me, it was the rainbow washing aspect of it, where like it was so easy for companies to put on a parade float you know, the money that it cost them to do that and whatever loss of goodwill back then for, from homophobes was worth the good vibes that they were getting from people, especially in like centers of power like D.C. or New York, where then those people would go back to their jobs where they're making decisions, especially these like well-meaning cishet allies who would go back and be like, Facebook wasn't that nice. They like love gay people. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think like a light bulb moment for me reading your piece, Christina's, and you're like, You talk about the way that there's been a lot of framing. Rainbow capitalism was somehow leading cultural norms, when in reality, it just merely reflects them back. And so the fact that a bunch of random companies got really into this, like maybe Target was a little more on the, you know, trying to monetize a kind of cultural wave through literal merch, right? But a lot of the other corporate pride is actually just an employee side thing. It's a legal liability issue. Mm -hmm. If you want to hire people who are LGBT, you can't discriminate against them. And also, like, you can't recruit them if your workplace is not seen as welcoming. And, you know, I I was thinking about this because I can always bring a little Canadian perspective to the show. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, some of my first prides when I came of age, because I'm so shockingly young, you know, back in the early to mid aughts, um, you know, Canada had already legalized same sex marriage in 2005. Um, and I can remember going to pride parades, uh, you know, in the wake of that. And we were all ready. I mean, I, I have my own TD Bank story in Toronto <laughs> from like 2006 <laughs> or seven, where I was like, well, here we go. Um, and, and one thing that's really interesting is if that seems kind of relatively early compared to the United States, you know, one of the things I've been keeping an eye on is this summer in Canada, this month, you know, the outbreak of a lot of uh, anti-gay, anti-trans kind of local confrontations around pride um, and Canadians really struggling to make sense of it. And so wanting to say, oh, America's infiltrating us again. We're importing mm. their bullshit. And it's like, oh, so you literally can't imagine that there are homophobes and transphobes <laughs> in Canada because you've seen this kind of corporate, like, you know, consensus for so long. Um, and I think that that is the thing that I hope, you know, we could kind of have like a public reckoning around, mm. maybe less so for LGBT people, and maybe more just for the general public. It's like, no, that's maybe not a useful measure of progress. And also, it doesn't provide any insulation, right? It never stacked up or accrued anything um, to serve as a barrier against this kind of now huge wave of homophobic and transphobic political attacks, right? I just think there's a kind of trickiness here, but maybe an opportunity Um, for a bigger public conversation about what we thought was happening for the past 10 years, what really happened, and maybe what the takeaways from that might be. Yeah, I do wonder whether this will sort of show people who were maybe uncritically appreciative of corporate pride just how flimsy that so-called support was. And maybe also how flimsy or not sort of not lasting, like, an idea of like corporate peer pressure, if that's the right term, uh, yes. might have been like, I think I, I, I'm sure I probably have felt this at various moments that like, well, maybe the corporations are disingenuous or just, you know, ne- neutral about this. But having, for example, this ad that's been on Delta uh, flights uh, on the jet bridge forever of these two gay guys yes. absolutely being gay, like, like, you know, cuddling <laughs> each other on the plane that I notice every time I've, I've thought that that, well, that is like going to like, 
pressure people who maybe aren't comfortable with me being on this flight, uh, visibly gay, into at least like shutting up and leaving me alone, right? Or like it's going to set the tone somehow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I think I believed that. I definitely believed that. What we're seeing now, I think, is that that's just not true, that there were plenty of people who maybe were cowed into a little bit of quiet about it for a time. But now that the the, the tides have turned and that that the energy is sort of going the other way, that that was not quite so strong of a, a deterrent, you know, really, that they were just sort of waiting, waiting to come out. I just think there's a new boldness among right wingers when it comes to harassing people in public spaces because their anger is being uh, inflamed and they're seeing all these videos of people doing that same thing in public space and those people being applauded for it and treated like heroes for it. And so I feel like we're now seeing the same thing around just like trans people being in public and being harassed. There was that story about that gay couple on Amtrak with kids. Uh Uh And now this Target stuff where employees are bearing the brunt of it. And I I imagine also queer and trans people shopping in the pride section. It just feels like there's like a little bit of a social contract that was being thinly held in place in part by those like Uh cute gay ads. (laughs) That now it's like the anger is able to come out at companies too to be like, well, no, I, this company is woke. And so like I'm against this entire policy and I'm going to make a thing about it. Yeah. In that same vein, you know, in this sort of era where there's a lot more public confrontation and this just sort of unclear, what are we going to do? Who do you appeal for? Do you want someone to intervene? Well, it's not the state. <laughs> it's certainly not the police. Is it going to be a corporation, right? Would you like them to enforce a certain set of norms when that was never really what they were promising to do, right? And, and, and you know, genuinely complex issue. There are lots of different beliefs, you know, amongst queers and trans people about what you should do in those moments. But I think, you know, genuinely speaking, we're just sort of dealing with some difficult, um, some difficult aftermath of something that's kind of been brewing for a long time, but it just sucks to see it all burn so intensely and so weirdly um, and, you know, take away our, our little cheap rainbow uh, accoutrement. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this. I could obviously talk about this all day. Yeah. Listeners, we'd really love to hear what you think about all this. Let us know your feelings on corporate pride and whether they've changed this season. You can reach us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. And, you know, feel free to send us a voice memo if you want. We love to hear your voices. We really do. We demand your voices. Where are your voices? <laughs> Where are the voices? <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Delilah Friedler has captured a consequence of the ongoing war on trans and queer people in this country that we haven't heard nearly enough about. She writes, quote, Under such hostile, even genocidal conditions, queer and trans people living rurally, especially in states like Tennessee and Florida, face impossible choices. Do they uproot, leaving behind their quiet lives, gardens, and favorite hiking and foraging spots? 
Or do they stay in places where some of their families have lived for generations and others have painstakingly forged queer community where none existed at possible risk to their health and safety? Either path is fraught with fear, uncertainty, and the grief of losing home. Delilah's time living in Tennessee and her networks there have allowed her to bring us a rich and heartbreaking report about this forced migration crisis as it's unfolding. It's a story that grapples with all of those emotions that she mentions and one that I think invites us to see possibilities for trans and queer life that we maybe hadn't considered before, even as those possibilities are being narrowed. Delilah is a wonderful journalist and Slate contributor who's written on queer community and climate justice for Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, Pitchfork, Vice, and more. We spoke recently about her great Rolling Stone article about the queer underground nightlife scene and ketamine during our chat with Alex Belser on the episode about queering psychedelics. I'm so proud to have this new piece in Slate, and I'm thrilled that Delilah is here today to talk with us about it. Welcome to Outward, Delilah. Thank you. I thought that maybe we could start with you just telling us a little about your history with Tennessee. You know, how did you end up living there for a while, and what did you make of that experience? I got connected to queer community in Tennessee when I was already living in the South. I'm from California, but I have a lot of family in New Orleans. And after I graduated college, I went to live in New Orleans. And through that, met some people who knew other people with this community land project in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And so I was invited up there. I think it was the third time that I visited that I was going through a bit of a personal crisis and didn't really know what was my place in the world. And so some people that were living out in the country on this land in Tennessee encouraged me to come and live with them while I sort of figured things out. And so I think I was 24 when I decided to like make the jump into this totally unfamiliar living situation. Like Mm. I had never lived in the countryside. I had never lived in the South outside of like the liberal bubble of New Orleans. And I moved up there and I stayed for nine months. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a little bit about the genesis of this piece. You know, you've obviously got a network of friends and contacts uh, still in Tennessee. What was happening and what did you sort of want to capture in this in this story? Yeah, I mean, from the very beginning of this year, it was really obvious that my friends in Tennessee were super scared, overwhelmed and busy as a result of all (laughs) the legislation. And, you know, most of these friends live an hour and a half or more from uh, from Nashville, where the state Mm. capital is. But they were going there multiple times a week to meet with legislators, to testify in hearings, just speak about, you know, the trans bathroom bills, the sports bills, the hormone bills, the anti-drag bill, you know, they were calling it in Tennessee the slate of hate because there was just Hmm. such a comprehensive effort. And so this was going on in many states, in different parts of the South, in different parts of the country. But I became very aware of what was happening in Tennessee specifically because my friends were just so like teetering on the edge of burnout from everything they were doing to try to organize in the interests of our rights. Mm. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, 
this this community that you know might be small town or rural based is nevertheless you know making these long trips to Nashville and how you tell the story of of these folks is really helpful for city brats like me you know reminding us not just that like tons of queer and trans people in the south and they're there for all sorts of reasons but also that like people who have a kind of intentional small town or or rural life in Southern states as queer and trans people aren't necessarily doing it like, you know, as like escapism from the rest of the world, but are very embedded in both their local communities and Mm. state, uh, state level issues and state politics. And how would you describe that? A lot of, a lot of trans people are really involved in the local community. And the first thing that comes to mind because of, the topic we're discussing is activism and organizing. Mm. And, you know, even if we just think of quote unquote left-wing organizing, if you're working with people from, let's say the whole county, that's a rural county in Tennessee, that's not the same as, as like organizing with social justice people Mm. in a city where they are probably queer themselves or they have trans friends. Like if you're part of some kind of like healthcare coalition or like, Mm. you know, like a prison abolition working group in rural Tennessee, like you could be the only queer person in the room, let alone trans person. And so a lot of my friends are really involved in those kind of efforts where even if it isn't bringing them into contact with, you know, the full religious and or conservative flank of their region, it's still going to be a little bit of extra work for them, I guess, to try to like integrate into these spaces and maybe do more education. Mm. And then of course that's to say nothing of like, if you go to the town council meetings or you go to like the County board of supervisors or whatever it may be, and you show up and testify. And it's just, it's just a lot more common than if you were doing that kind of work Um, in a, in a city like New York, it's a lot more common to just be the only trans person in the room or maybe Mm -hmm. that these people have ever seen in their life. So I think it shows how committed people are to their activism, that they're willing to like take that step. And I think a lot of times they just, it just becomes like a fact of life. You profile a few different people in this story. Um, I wonder if you could pick one of them, maybe Brie or Jack, and show us how that shift from a period where there was like some kind of harmony or some some way of sort of making a life to the environment now, which is being shaped by all of this legislation and, and attacks and how that's looked for, you know, one of those individuals. So one of the people that I profiled is this person, Bree. They work as a substitute teacher and they teach at different schools in their county. So something that they told me was that there is only one school that is so sort of like remote and sheltered that they don't feel comfortable showing up and sort of announcing their queerness and their transness there. And the rest of the schools that they teach at, you know, they're wearing rainbows and a pronoun pin and all these things. But they told me that that situation was the same before and after the slate of hate came to Tennessee in the legislature. So in other words, like the way that they feel comfortable showing up in schools, the way that they feel received by students and other staff members didn't necessarily change. What did change was the measures that Brie had to take to protect themselves Mm. um, actually like digitally is one of the main things that they mentioned because they had been present 
at, um, you know, this standoff involving a lot of people from far right groups outside of a drag brunch um, in, in Cookville, Tennessee. And, you know, I don't know that they were specifically targeted after that, but they became aware that people from some of these far right groups were targeting queer and trans activists in Tennessee and, Mm -hmm. you know, posting their public information online, what we call doxing was kind of just the beginning of it because people were being hacked and having like their entire accounts taken over and information stolen. And um, another big concern is like infiltrators. There was just recently a story that came out from Tennessee about a um, organizing meeting that was infiltrated by someone from the far right who basically took, all of their plans for protesting um, immigration policies and leaked them to the press. Wow. And so I think what I'm trying to say is like, we might assume that the result of the changing climate is that trans people feel less safe walking down the street in their small town or going to buy groceries. And I'm not going to say that that isn't true, but the stories that I've actually heard are a lot more about being sort of targeted through these kind of like shadowy underground networks and like digital hacking. And a lot of times the people who are doing that are um, not actually from these these rural places they could exactly. be from other states exactly. entirely so it, you know you start to see that the threat and also the prejudice is not necessarily coming from your neighbors in this small town it's coming from higher up in mm. the republican party it's coming from shadowy evangelical political networks and it's coming from a lot of far-right dudes who are really sitting behind their computers and yeah. trying to do as much damage as they can without even really knowing who you are or where you live or things like that. Yeah. You know, one thing that you write about is that even as a lot of these folks are trying to think about how to do coalition building uh, with their neighbors, I think you write really beautifully about this idea of rural life and the connection to nature that it allows people to have. You have this line uh, from the piece where you say, I feel especially bereaved by the growing sense that conservatives and the white folks protected by their regimes are developing a monopoly on access to nature. In cities, we can love openly and revel in community, but rarely do we get to know the peace of the forest, recalibrate our bodies by laying on the bare earth, splash with friends in a secret swimming hole, or taste the juices of a freshly plucked pawpaw. I would love to hear you to speak a little bit about that aspect of this, because, you know, who gets to have access to nature is such an interesting question. Yeah, I think anyone who has ever lived in, I'm going to say cosmopolitan area instead <laughs> of instead of liberal bubble, because yeah, yeah. living, you know, it's not just like a bunch of liberal people in a circle trying to keep everything out. It's rather <laughs> just a city where diversity is recognized yeah. and honored and people learn to get along with their neighbors. So yeah. if you've ever lived in a place like that, you've probably had the experience of going on a camping trip or a road trip where you pull into the gas station and suddenly it's like every car has a MAGA bumper sticker (laughs) and people are saying things you wouldn't normally hear in your city home. And it's, it's just like, as soon as you get like a certain radius outside of cities in most States, I would say, even if it's California, Mm -hmm. you, you encounter an increasing number of conservative people. 
this phenomenon is not new. Um, I think it goes back a very long time. But when you look at posts online of trans people who are saying, hey, is it safe to keep living where I'm living? And I want to leave rural Tennessee or I want to leave Florida. Where is safe to go? And everyone's saying, well, you should move to New York or you should mm-hmm. move to Miami or yeah. well, that's still in Florida. But, <laughs> you know, I was trying to give another metropolitan area yeah, because yeah. <laughs> there are many. But you know, essentially like what is already underway is an exodus out of red states and out of rural regions to allegedly comfortable, safe um, blue cities or blue states. It's hard to not see that the overall trend is that queer and trans people are having to leave behind places that are more remote and thus have a view of the night sky and places to go paddle on a river. And um, Uh I don't think that that's anyone on the right's goal is, hey, let's exclude all these people from nature. I don't think anyone is thinking of- But it's an effect. Yeah, it's an an effect, but it's an effect that I want people to think about more Mm -hmm. because it is- devastating and you know really sad to think that because the thing i think i i'm thinking about a lot right now is like i hope to god i'm wrong but it really seems like the political moment we're living in with regard to transphobia is potentially just the beginning of something that could get a lot worse and so if it already feels a little uncomfortable to go park your car next to the maga car with the gun in the front and go paddling with your friends, then I just wonder what could it be like down the road when more of these laws have been passed and more rhetoric has been used to whip people up. And suddenly it's like, not only do you not want to live in these places as a trans person, but maybe you don't even want to go there to enjoy the nature. And I'm sure there's already people who would feel too uncomfortable venturing into certain towns to get access to a forest or a river or whatever. And I just really hope that that doesn't get much worse because that that access to the natural world is so necessary and vital and healing for everyone. Uh, that is all the time we have for this segment. There's so much more uh, in this piece that we could talk about, but you can go read it. Our guest has been Delilah Friedler. Her piece is titled, Trans people have led rich and surprising lives in rural America. Now they face an impossible choice. And it's now out as part of Slate's Not Quite Pride series. Please be sure to read it and all the others, share them with your friends. And Delilah, thank you so much for writing this piece and for uh, being here with us on Outward today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really great to have more opportunities to discuss what's going on in the South and in rural places because it doesn't get enough attention. Yeah, oh, I agree. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, that's about it for this month. But before we go, we've got your monthly updates to the lovely gay agenda. Uh, Brian, you want to kick us off? 
Sure. Um, I, being a very nerdy person, have a doc uh, documentary that was is on PBS this month. Um, it is called Casa Susana, and it is uh, part of the American Experience series that PBS does. Um, it, uh, just so you know how to get it, it premieres on June 27th, but I think it's already streaming if you have the PBS Passport app, which is a wonderful uh, app that you should get if you don't have it. Um, but Casa Susana is just this really lovely, sort of straightforward, quiet kind of documentary that tells the story of a underground network of transgender women and cross-dressing people who found a kind of refuge at this house up in the Catskills in New York. Um, it provided like a safe place for them to dress the way that they wanted to, to socialize, to have these lovely seeming dinner parties and cocktail parties. And again, this is all in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, a time when that was pretty dangerous elsewhere. Um, the film sort of uses the memories of four different people, two of whom um, were there and so are, are quite old at this point. Um, and then the children of two people who were heavily involved. And so you get uh, a portrait of what this this sort of uh, haven was like um, during, during the period that it was in operation. Um, you know, it has a pretty light touch to showing uh, a lot of different complicated things uh, about what is, you know, quote unquote, cross-dressing. What does it mean to be trans and cross-dress? How, how did those categories sort of shift during this moment? Uh, also about being stealth or not, sort of internalized transphobia. Um, and you even get these fascinating details about like wives who would take their husbands, you know, there um, and, and be there with them while they were, were participating in the, the social scene. So just a really nice snapshot of a place, uh, lovely doc. Uh, it's called Casa Susana and it's on PBS. Why well, I, I never do this, but um, if you want, if you're feeling hungry for more, after that doc airs on the 27th, American Experience has got a second episode for you on Christine Jorgensen, Ah, uh, world-famous trans woman of the 1950s. And I'll just say, one of the talking heads uh, in that episode is uh, yours truly. So if you're not tired of my voice, (laughs) and you want to see me, uh, I'll be there to talk talk more trans with you. I can't believe we have a movie star on this podcast. PBS, Christina, PBS, we love. (laughs) It's my dream come true. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds really great, Brian. Yeah. Um, well, Jules, do you want to go ahead and share your since you? I mean, funny enough, I also have a documentary <laughs> recommendation. Yeah. I guess we're just feeling it so this much. Educate yourself this Pride Month. <laughs> right. Well, I've got one that's just delightful and darling and wonderful. There's this new documentary film, um, you know, that, that just premiered um, this very month at Tribeca. It's called Chasing, Chasing Amy. Ooh, I've heard of this. Um, No, I didn't accidentally glitch there. Uh, It really is called Chasing, Chasing Amy. This is a wonderful new documentary film um, by director Sav Rogers, who also is sort of the protagonist of it. And it's it's a really wonderful film about his, like, sort of experience, um, you know, in the 1990s watching this, you know, now kind of infamous 1997 film, Chasing Amy, and seeing... Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, he felt to be really positive LGBT representation and as an adult kind of going after and reconstructing what that all meant when other parts of the film like definitely don't age well, like a guy's <laughs> falling in love with a lesbian. Um, and uh, it's just like this wonderful film that I think is just come come out to sort of rave reviews. Um, I, I adore Sav. 
uh, and really, really recommend it. It just premiered at Tribeca. There are some screenings, select screenings going on uh, in June and July, but I expect the way things are going, it's going to expand. So mm. if we make some noise, try and get them to come out to your town or if you live in one of those bigger cities, definitely go check out this film. I just feel like it's one of those beautiful meditations on how we get super attached to something from a pivotal moment in our lives. And and then like <laughs> when you, if you're, if you're brave enough to go back to it, it's like just always such a wild, journey and story so i i highly recommend chasing chasing amy that sounds great that sounds super fun yeah yeah Yeah, i feel like i've heard some buzz about it too well christina what do you have i am recommending a book because i am learned uh, (laughs) as well Uh, not just our docu fiends here Mm. um the book i'm recommending is a novel called dykette by jenny fran davis uh it's about Three queer couples on a holiday getaway at one of the couple's second homes in Hudson, New York. Um, It's told through the perspective of a high femme named Sasha, who has a butch boyfriend, and she's grappling with her jealousy of this other femme on the trip who she perceives as uh, sort of a threat to her. Um, She's also sort of fumbling over her desire for commitment and security and domesticity, which she seeks out through what Jenny Fran Davis calls high femme camp antics, which was the title of this essay she wrote. But basically it's referring to like performing over the topness, neediness, demanding what you want in a way that kind of ensures that you'll never be satisfied when you receive it. It's a very, very rich and, discomforting novel. I found it to be a really fresh feeling exploration of femme as an identity, like something that that made me think about a lot of stuff that I had never really thought of before about, you know, what femininity means and how and why we perform it and and what that means as a queer person specifically. And this particular person's enactment of femme identity is so specific that uh, it just it left a lot of room for drama on this mm. trip and and some very provocative performance art that I won't spoil. Oh, my God. Highly recommended to, I think, listeners of our podcast would really enjoy it. Again, it's called Dykette by Jenny Fran Davis. Oh, that sounds cool. amazing. Yeah, I love that. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode, but... If your appetite is as expansive as the spectrum of queer sexualities, do I have good news for you? This month, Outward is bringing you weekly bonus episodes to keep your pride feed well stocked and maybe well lubricated. Mm. You'll be able to catch my conversation with journalist Evan Urquhart about how different kinds of trans people are processing and also politicizing their grief right now. It's a really beautiful chat and you can find that alongside other extra episodes from Brian and Christina in your Outward feed. But also, please send us feedback and topic ideas to outwardpodcast at slate.com or send them to us via Facebook or Twitter where we are at Slate Outward. And as always, a little reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. If you want to learn more, you can go to slate.com slash outward plus. June Thomas is our producer and the grand marshal of this bloody <laughs> parade. <laughs> Emily Cherish provided some essential and much appreciated editing help this month. 
If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. Bye, Christina. Bye, Colin. Bye, Bye, Joel. Happy Pride. Stay gay. Yeah, happy Pride. Happy Pride, everyone.